Hello and welcome to the Lively Faith Podcast. I am your host, the Reverend Nathan Stomberg, and today I am joined by fellow ministry partner, the Reverend Mark Galloway. Before we get started, we would love to stay in touch with you. Why not click the link in the description and join our email list? We'll send you occasional updates about new episodes and other important goings-on, and also don't forget to hit that subscribe button. We thank you for your continued prayers and support. So today, Mark, we're going to be talking about a variety of topics, all related in terms of, I'd call it denominational indigestion and, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and a certain manner of speaking. Uh, we want to discuss the GAFCON statement that was put out in the Anglican world. We'll explain the background to that for people who are unfamiliar. We'll talk about some happenings in the SBC with some disaffiliation over female pastors. And then we'll also talk about the infamous synod of synodality in the Catholic Church. So really three different spheres of the Christian world, but all going through their own difficulties and turmoil. And really what we want to get out of this conversation today is how can we as pastors, how can we as lay people think about these things without becoming consumed by the drama of it all, being consumed by scandal and turmoil. So let's start with the GAFCON statement. So at the time of this recording, all three of these things have developed pretty recently. And so when we're listening to this episode, this will have been a few months in the past, right? So GAFCON can, would you care to explain to our viewers and listeners, Mark, what GAFCON is and what their role is in the Anglican Communion? Yeah, the GAFCON movement is um, uh, something that is almost 20 years old, and it was born, and I was regionally part of these conversations, uh, and goes all the way back to the Gene Robinson consecration in 2003. For the Episcopal Church. Openly homosexual elected bishop, then confirmed by the General Convention in 2003. And I was at, at that convention, which is another whole podcast if we want to talk about it. Um, and then um, the two-thirds world in particular uh, really rebelled. But that process has been going on since the 1998 Lambeth Conference, uh, where all the Anglican bishops in the world are invited to Lambeth Palace. Uh, they don't actually meet there, but that's its original name, um, where the Archbishop of Canterbury lives, and he invites them as the first among equals of communion every, every 10 years. And they come, it does not have juridical authority, it's a moral authority, and it's Conference of Bishops, but they fa passed by a large majority, but a large majority dominated by the two-thirds world, uh, famous 1.10110 resolution that they affirm the traditional biblical stance on human sexuality and human marriage. And from 1998 on, more or less, it was something that was utterly ignored by the American Episcopal Church, the Canadian Anglican Church of Canada, uh, and then really the satellite churches around the Church of England, 
Scotland, um, Wales, eventually the Church of England itself. And uh, so th this, this disintegration of the Anglican Communion is not something that just happened. It's been going on for, for really uh, 25 years. And uh, GAFCON, uh, the Global Anglican, Anglican Futures Church Conference, was begun in 2003. And it's becoming more and more of its own ecclesiastical entity uh, ever since then. And they had famously met in Jerusalem and put out the Jerusalem Statement in 2008, which was, you know, a bunch of bullet points about really just reinforcing traditional doctrines, particularly about human sexuality and so forth. And so um, their most recent meeting is in response uh, it was February, I think they met, correct? April, February, maybe. Somewhere. I think it was April. And um, response to the Church of England's endorsement of the blessing of same-sex unions in, in the church. And in Anglicanism, Church of England's the mother church, so it's, though it's this, a completely sick institution, dying institution, has been forever. Um, but the Archbishop of Canterbury is recognized as the first among equals, as a senior bishop in the communion. Again, it's a, Which is in contrast to maybe how people would think of the uh, hierarchy within the Catholic Church. Yeah, very, it's very different, but it's uh, uh, at the same time, Anglican, Anglicanism is the most structured, though it's, it's really a confederation uh, of than any other church on earth, other, even more so than the Orthodox churches, because the Orthodox churches never meet. Mm. Even though they're autocephalous, <clears throat> they're, they're, um, they're entities to themselves, like the province of the Anglican Communion. The fact is, the Orthodox bishops haven't met together for hundreds of years. So Anglican bishops do meet since 1867, every 10 years. Um, and the Lambeth Conference really was the glue that kept much of Anglicanism together, uh, especially around the difference in those from the origins of Anglicanism's arguments weren't about sexuality. You would, can't imagine this, that the sex didn't dominate the life of the church until re relatively recently. It used to be about churchmanship. Right. Especially in the Anglican synthesis ever since the Elizabethan settlement in 1559. There was always a Catholic ethos to Anglicanism in a rather Protestant Reformed ethos. And they lived together within the same national church, using the same Book of Common Prayer, the same confession, and yet they emphasized quite different things. One, uh, the Catholic side, emphasizing the medieval continuity of, of the Church of England, Anglicanism, with uh, the Latin Church and the more Protestant side of Anglicanism, uh, being more in tune with magisterial reformers on the continent. Yes. And so this this tension has always been part of the rubber band in, in Anglicanism. It's unique to the Anglican synthesis, and yet it had a ministerial system of hierarchy of bishops, priests, and deacons. And so it's uh, known as the Via Medea. It's uh, the middle way uh, between... Uh, Roman Catholicism in the Latin West and the mainline Protestantism. That's not an exact truth, but it's generally, generally true. But the, the sex thing has just utterly dominated everything. Really, almost my whole 30 years as a priest, it's dominated 
every aspect and um, the eroding of traditional doctrines of marriage, sexuality um, has just uh, been chipped away at where now it's, it's all gone. Uh, you know, just transgender priests, the Episcopal Church last year gave its official endorsement to transgenderism. That's right. And all, all of it, right? It's, and as you know, I wrote uh, back in 2003, I wrote, I wrote a treatise that got published, it went online, and this was just about the, the Robinson consecration. And, you know, it wasn't my version of Ratzinger, but I said, this is going to lead to this, it's going to lead to this, it's going to lead to this, this can of worms is going to lead, and of course it all happened. You have to be a genius to see what was going to happen, but it's all happened, right? From, from gay couples with in vitro fertilization, baptizing kids who were never conceived by conjugal union, were made in petri dishes, and all this stuff. Like this is the will of God, or and so it's so big this issue, and it's so it's it's not complicated, but it has so many tributaries. And it's pretty wide-reaching. It's, it's unbelievable, right? So. I say all that to say that GAFCON in uh, this spring met, I think it was their fourth meeting, um, and they basically fired the Archbishop of Canterbury. All right? Pretty much. They, have, they decided as the two-thirds world that they were no longer going to recognize the Archbishop of Canterbury because as the, as the titular head of the communion, he, uh, he fully endorsed uh, the whole sexual agenda in the Church of England and including the sex, sexuality issues and the blessing of same-sex unions and two-thirds world. Like, you can't be the spiritual father of, a, of an international worldwide communion, right? It's the third largest communion in the world right. to Catholicism, Orthodoxy, but it's the second most spread out to Catholicism. Mm. So you find Anglicanism in more places in the world than anything but Catholicism, no other denomination. Orthodoxy is in very distinct spots and not found anywhere in other spots. But Anglicanism is found wherever the British Empire went throughout the world. So it's it's virtually everywhere. And um, so in the lead up to this GAFCON meeting, which was in April, they held it in um, Kigali, Rwanda. And so that straw that broke the camel's back, what you were talking about, the Archbishop of Canterbury in and the Church of England in February made the decision to bless same-sex couples. Yeah, and I mean, it's bad, you know, for, for the two-thirds world, for, and when I say the two-thirds world, it's not just the old uh, understanding of, uh, of the geography of the two-thirds world, yeah. right? It's literally two-thirds of all Anglicans are in Africa and the, the sub-Sahara continent. And right? it's two-thirds with regard to population yes. of the world. Right, so the minority and it's growing, it's growing incrementally small every day, uh, are white European English, um, people of English heritage. Anglo-Saxon. Anglo-Saxons, right? And, at, and while those churches, <laughs> the Church of England, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Scotland, they all shrink every day at an astronomical rate. Uh, at one point in uh, Nigeria and Uganda, there was a thousand converts a week, which right. is hard to wrap your right. mind around. So there's two, in, there's these two polar opposite things going on in the communion, right? And so all this progressive stuff's going on, 
in the old center of the communion, the Canterbury communion, and they're dying and they keep pushing, pushing, pushing progressive ideas like somehow that's going to grow the church and actually convert culture. It, uh, it's nonsense. And meanwhile, the church has exploded, right? So uh, I was give the example, Uganda, Idi Amin mm-hmm. of infamy, uh, 1977, murdered, had murdered on the tarmac at the capital of the country, uh, Janani Luam, who is the archbishop, Anglican archbishop of, of Uganda, was murdered by the dictator. And at the time, Uganda was the least Christian country on earth. And today it is the most Christian country on earth because the blood of the seed, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, seed of the church, right? And the sickness and the irony of all of this is that it was missionaries predominantly from the Church of England in America that brought the gospel to Africa. And the missionaries had, depending on where they came from, they tend, if they came from America, they tend to be high church. They came from England, they tend to be low church. And so the different countries and provinces in Africa uh, are either very Catholic or very Protestant, mm-hmm. depending on which one evangelized them. Um, but they, they resent the fact that the empire and the Americans brought the gospel to the continent, and then 150 years later tell them how they're all bigots because they actually believe the gospel that was brought to right. them by the missionaries. Right? And some of that's not racism. It's utter. It's total cultural racism. Oh yeah, rhetorically right? speaking, right? And yeah. it's we were talking about this off camera that it's really a form of neo-colonialism. Yes, and it's ironic because they claim to be the ones who right. are most against right. colonialism. You dumb itself. people, right? You're not. It's like you're not sophisticated enough to think like us. It's an ideological colonialism. It, it's, it's disgusting, right? And so it's um, they. And it's not just that the Church of England passed same-sex blessings. It's that, can, it's, it's that the Archbishop himself pushed it and endorsed it and gave it his imprimatur. Yes. And for them, that's, that's just the breaking point. And so they, they basically withdrew from the Anglican Communion, and they're going to elect their own first among equals. And so the Anglican world is, is roughly 85 million, and now... 65 to 70 to 75 million of them will belong to the two-thirds world. And the meanwhile, the other 15 million dying people will pretend that they're self-righteous and we're really the, you know, we're on the right side of history and all the other nonsense that you hear from progressive Christianity. And uh, the fact is they're going to cease to exist in 20 years. And meanwhile, Christianity will continue to grow and be influential in the and global south. In the global south. And, uh, but you know what? When you don't really believe Jesus is Lord anybody, you don't care about any of those things. It becomes a secondary concern to yes. the, the people who were separated from, so to speak. One question to answer right off the bat before we dive in deep. Same question that we've asked in previous episodes. We did it with the Catholic Church, right? Why should all Christians care about the Catholic Church? And again today... Why should Christians care? I think you already answered that in large part because of the size and the influence of the Anglican Communion, its impact on Western and global history, and its continued influence throughout the majority world today. That's why we should care what's happening in the Anglican Communion. It's totally disproportional, right? 
it's to the Western civilization uh, through it's either providence or it's it's the uh, accident of history. Uh, the Anglican ethos has been the most influential Protestant, non-Catholic influence in all of the world. Because again, because the British Empire was the most powerful thing on earth from post-Elizabethan times until World War I, right? And so uh, this massive evangelism, more Christians became Christians in uh, the non-Caucasian Western world through Anglican effort than any of the other Protestant works because the empire was brought to all these places. And so the Archbishop of Canterbury has historically for 200 years been the second most recognizable prelate on earth to the Pope himself, right? So this is yeah. disproportional influence that has always been there. And uh, now it's waned almost congruently with the the demise of the British Empire and British influence and in the, in the might of, of the United Kingdom itself, right? And so it's kind of a coincides when we talked about Elizabeth, how she lived through this great transition, the loss of the empire, then the rise of the Commonwealth. And, you know, by the 70s, before Margaret Thatcher came to office, England was just about becoming a third world country themselves economically. Yeah. Right? They were a mess. So um, all these things have um, happened in history in these last 60 to 70 years and so forth. So, so that's everything that's going on in the background, too this statement that gets put out. And I think there's really two things that we want to touch upon as we think about the GAFCON statement. The first is that it's bold, it's biblical, it's very admirable in a sense that they, they're they taking a stand on biblical uh, and historic Christian sexual morality. But I think the other part that hasn't gotten as much attention is that it's incomplete. It is problematic. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I mean, obviously, I, you know, I, I've been saying this for a long time in my own ministry and writings and different things that the Anglican Communion is is it's a farce. It's a shadow. It's it's a mirage. It hasn't really existed for a long time. You know, there's there's the instruments of communion. Right? There's the Archbishop of Canterbury himself. There's the Lambeth Conference. There's the Primates meeting. So primate being the head bishop of each of the provinces, which I think is now like 40, it used to be a, whatever, 40 independent provinces. And then it was a thing called the Anglican Consultative Council, which was just this crappy administrative bureaucracy piece. But um, they haven't been, the primates has in time became the most powerful um, instrument in the Anglican Communion, but they were so divided on just major central tenets of the Christian faith, including this, whether the creed was true, and uh, besides all the sexuality issues that, you know, constantly, most, lots of primates would just boycott the meeting. Uh, and in the last, last, last Lambeth conference, most of the Africans didn't even go. Right. Right. So it wasn't really truly the yeah, it was universe. A false, false it wasn't unity. the worldwide episcopate there. Yeah. And so, so they passed a bunch of junk that never would have been passed if the actual, uh, two-thirds world was there. So it, it, it hasn't really existed in, since 98. The fact that the Western uh, remnants of the British Empire's 
you know, America, Canada. In fact, they all rejected Resolution 1.110, began the absolute collapse of the communion. And, and Roe Williams just made a mess of it. He was, as Archbishop, he just didn't, he didn't do anything to pull the communion together because he really was sympathetic to the progressive cause, right? And when you're first among equals, you can't do that. You know, it's like the, the Pope can't ever be about his agenda. He has to be about only defending what's always been true. Exactly. Right. And so it's we uh, had two really poor archbishops of Canterbury, in my opinion, in a row. And um, and I don't think and I think it's done. I just don't I don't think the Church of England will survive in any significant form from this point forward. Uh, nobody goes to church in England. There's no burning being born. There's no baptisms. Uh, there's no central doctrine. Uh, there'll, there'll be a few healthy parishes. A few cathedrals will last for a while, but its future is 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 really morbid. What's coming down the pipe for it? So, um, and it's really hard. Uh, a person who's you know I've dedicated my life in yeah. in ministry. It's to watch it disintegrate. But to disintegrate over things that clearly are are unbiblical and simply against natural law. Things that should be obvious yeah, and uniting for, to for believers. For like, believers. Right. Like we've talked about it. You can't read the first chapter of Romans and come to the conclusions you are about marriage, human sexuality, what's what's the created orders for, and other than saying St. Paul's wrong. Yeah. He right. didn't know what he was talking he talk, about. Right. And if St. Paul's, as we talked off camera, if St. Paul's wrong in the first chapter of Romans and in where he speaks in, in Corinthians about sexual mores and other things, what is Paul right about? Why is any of the scriptures right? Why should we believe anything right. else that he says? And in, and of course, it collapses the whole authority of the church. The scriptures have authority because the church recognized them as the paramount authority. And as we've you know, from quoting our catechism, it's to that authority the church must ever bow. Yes. The, and the it, church is the custodian of the scriptures. Right. And it doesn't bow to that at all. So instead, it, it pretends that there's three equal authorities, which is not true. Uh, there's, there's, there's scripture, tradition, and reason. Partly quoting the great Richard Hooker, the Elizabethan. The three-legged stool. There's no so such speak. thing as a three-legged stool. Small of it's like a string. Yeah. And if you read Hooker, Hooker, Hooker never said that. He said the allegiance is always first to Scripture. And you, you read Scripture within the context of reason in the tradition of the church. But there's no such thing as a three-legged no such thing as a three-legged stool. I just read an article today, this morning before I met you, that I my head was ready to explode because this guy was a a liberal reporter for the Episcopal Church at the GAFCON meeting, and he's like, Oh, we believe in the three-legged stool. Guy was it doesn't matter. He's a convert from, from Lutheranism, but he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know the context of history. He doesn't know Hooker at all in context. You have to read Hooker. And it wouldn't, you know that's not what it says, but it's, it's like so much stuff. Once you say enough, it gets passed on into lore. L -O -R -E. You're speak it into yeah, existence. And, and that's what's happened in Anglicanism, right? Uh, Article 6 is really what Anglicanism is about, is that it's it's not sola scripture, it's prima scripture. Right? Yes. Scriptures contain everything necessary for salvation, right? But as the articles of religion, through an article's religion, is that that 
scripture is always interpreted in the light of the tradition of the church. Otherwise, the creed wouldn't even be mentioned in the articles, right? Absolutely. You know, in the, in the, the articles say the, the creed needs to be believed because it's wholly compatible to Holy Scripture, right? And so the ecclesiology of the Anglican world, bishops, priests, and deacons are compatible to Holy Scripture and blah, 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 blah. And so uh, it's just this total, it's just dismaying to me. Uh, yeah, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, and but we're now two or three generations into priests, priests and priestesses and bishops who believe that this is really the Anglican heritage, and it's not, right? It's 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 literally a second half, last third of the twentieth century invention, and that becomes more sacrosanct. And that that's tradition. Tradition maybe goes back to the ordination of women in 1976 in the Episcopal Church. It becomes a tradition unto itself. Right, yeah. right. And the fact that, the fact is, it's not possible to ordain women. Right? And it, it's it, that's the part that the Gafcon statement is incomplete about. It, it doesn't really address, it tries to address the sexuality issue solely from Scripture without putting it in the context of how the church, the universal church, has always exactly. interpreted natural law side by side with scripture in its sexual mores. Instead, it just kind of goes this sola scriptura type of defense of, not that they're wrong what they say about uh, sexuality, but their methodology is incomplete because it leaves yeah. themselves wide open for instance, they didn't. The ordination of women is still the most divisive issue, outside of sexuality. But it's it wasn't even on the docket. Yeah, it didn't it didn't even come up because they would never gain consensus because the because the provinces are all over the map on the issue. But the fact is, it's like truth. We've talked about many times. The Holy Spirit can never speak opposing truths to any two groups of people. Right. There's only truth. So. Either ontologically, women can be ordained priests until the episcopate, or they can't based on the tradition of the church, natural law, and the revelation of God and scripture itself. But it has nothing to do with a democratic process. The Holy Spirit doesn't operate by no. democracy. So, so of the 40 provinces, X amount don't ordain women and X do. But it can't be because the Holy Spirit speaking truth to some people and speaking falsity to other people. And it's not saying it's, two different things. It's, it's impossible for God, right? God, there's no variation due to shadow or change with God. And it's just endless chewing on the same piece of cud. It's the reason why, you, why the church you grew up in and the church you pastor is not part of the Anglican Church in North America. Right, that Holy Communion, right. Because people have asked it, all the time why. It's just going to, it's inevitable the same issues. Already there's dissenting parishes within ACNA over the sexuality issue. Well, exactly, and it, it can only go in one direction, and people ask all the time why they see that Holy Communion is an independent Anglican Church, and that's the reason that I give is, again, the direction that we see things going within ACNA, and then, again, a conviction to stay true to both Scripture and its interpretation based on Church tradition. What you were just saying about scripture and tradition is the perfect segue. In contrast to the article that made your head want to explode, there was a really great article about the GAFCON statement on firstthings.com mm. written by Hans Biersma. Yeah, which, from the Shorter House, yeah. Exactly, and 
was really well written. I just want to pull a quick excerpt from this, and we'll include a link in the description as well. And really sums up what you were just saying, Mark, that, uh, let's see, where did you have it here? The Kigali commitment repeatedly appeals to the authority of the Bible alone and fails to mention either the authority of the church or the role of tradition, describing the Bible as the rule of our lives and the final authority in the church without mentioning that scripture functions within the context of tradition. So in particular, the common liturgy of the church and the book of common prayer and the church's teaching authority. And so then he goes on to say that the divine scriptures are indeed the ultimate authority for matters of doctrine. The church has no authority to define dogma that the scriptures don't already contain or to admit heretical teachings that contradict them. That's what we were just talking about with the Holy Spirit. But, and here's, here's the kicker, a strict sola scriptura hermeneutic, which fails to recognize the Bible's origin, canon of scripture, in the ancient church and its authoritative interpretation by the church, fathers and creeds, opens up the way to a liberal method in which every reader serves as his own authority. And that's exactly what you were just speaking to. Protestant disease. Right. Right. And so that's going to be our transition into talking about some of the other issues that we brought up at the top of the episode. But I highly encourage anyone who is interested in the Anglican Communion goings-on to read this article on First Things. It was very well done, and it really speaks to the entirety of Anglican synthesis and why it's so important for those who claim to be Anglicans, those who would dare to claim the Anglican tradition to rest not only on the ultimate authority of Scripture, but also to really steep oneself and understand the interpretation of the Church Fathers and the creeds. Right. Right. Yeah. He did a great job in that article. Um, Yeah, it's... um, I, w- I, I wish I could say the Gafcon movement is going to solve all the problems, but it's not. It's not. You, 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 you can't you can aggressively go after one, even though they're, they're right about the morality of it, and ignore the other, right? Uh, because you could do that with a plethora of other issues, and you will as you, um, right? It's, we, there's so many tangential issues to the sexuality issue. Right, that are affecting every day the life of, of Christians, and, and it involves the sanctity of life, right? From, um, from birth control to artificial insemination to all of these other issues that are directly related to the marital act and what holy matrimony is, and right? And so, um, if conjugal union is not about being open to life, it's simply not Christian. Right. It, it, because it defies natural law, right? So if you if you don't live in after whatever uh, the turn of the twentieth century, none of this stuff was even possible. No, it would be almost incomprehensible, right? It's so unintelligible. It, it can't be part of natural law. So technology isn't a moral out. No, right? it's not a loophole. It's not a loop. Exactly, it's not a loophole from what it means to be husband and wife in the sacramental rite of holy matrimony. Um, 
I've said to you many times, and, and this can of worms, though it was, it had actually been spoken by other ecclesiastical fellowships and so forth, but it was the Lambeth Conference of Bishops in 1930 that first gave its, uh, it was conditional, but it was the can of worms and said that under these conditions, birth control would be acceptable. Mm. And once you did that, it's led, it really leads to abortion. It leads to all of these things, right? There's only a tiny minority of Anglicans would ever even, you know, I've said to you, uh, Paul VI was absolutely right about Humanae Vitae in 1969. Yes, he was. Right? And if you read that document, which took all kinds of poop from dissenting Roman Catholic theologians, and uh, some of them I've, I've known had them as professors, and, um, but he's absolutely right. This, this is what will happen when, and it's, it's what's happening, right? And all the other issues are related to it. All, all the homosexuality issues and the transgenderism, and who can marry who, you know, polyamory, all of it's related to the fact that you get away from what natural law demands right? between uh, male and females. That is people, one has a Y chromosome and the other doesn't. And you can say whatever you want. You can talk about how you feel, what you believe. It's irrelevant what you believe. It's what's relevant is what's true about nature. That's it, right? Uh, I always find it interesting, right? I'm, I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not an anti-Darwinism person, but uh, progressives use their theories of evolution uh, all over the place, right? But they just can't uh, deal with the fact that nowhere else in the animal kingdom is there such thing as animals trying to figure out how they can get around the Y chromosome. Yeah. Right? Yeah, they suddenly ditch their evolutionary yeah. worldview when it yes. no longer suits them. Right. So it's, um, yeah, I admire, I, I've, I've met, there are some of them are, uh, are retired now, but uh, the primate of Uganda, uh, one of the archbishops of, of Nigeria spent a week in our parish with us back in the two, 210s at uh, Holy Apostles and uh, in fact, I was supposed to spend uh, six weeks in Uganda hmm. and going through uh, extensive training and everything. And uh, the day before I was leave, the United States government wouldn't let us go because the Muslims had come from the north and invaded wow. and uh, all, all kinds of troubles in Nigeria. So they wouldn't give us our visas. And so I didn't end up going. I was supposed to do a preaching series in one of the dioceses in um, Nigeria and so forth. So. I've known some of these guys, you know, they were uh, I great admiration for them. I, I, they were like uh, apostles. Uh, they, they were just fearless of the old Anglican establishment. Yeah. Know? And, um, but at the same time, there's, you know, when you, you can't have unity around the nature of ordained ministry, I don't know how you can go forward with a unified mission of the church. Right. And that, that bore its ugly head at the Southern Baptist Convention there you go. Uh, in June, where they were having an annual meeting, and there was division over the service of women in the teaching office, and namely the service of women in the pastoral office, 
there's actually a heated exchange between uh, Albert Moeller, head of the Southern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary, and Rick Warren. The preeminent theologian. Yeah, and uh, Rick Warren of Saddleback Church in California, well known for his great book. What was it? Was that Purpose Driven Life? Purpose Driven Life, which is right, which, you know, Warren's interesting. Warren has big ties to the African Anglican. Hmm. He's he's raised lots of money, drilled a lot of wells, and uh, and in the early versions of GAFCON in America, uh, I was at those representatives, and he was the guest speaker several times. Uh, hmm. He's really, he has kind of this closet Anglican thing to him, but um, his book is Theological Light at Best. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Warren's not a dumb man. He's not. No, no. But he's not, he's not nearly the theologian that uh, uh, Albert Moeller is. Even though I, I don't, Moeller's a reformed theologian. I don't agree with Moeller about a lot of, I mean, Christologically I do, but I don't agree with his understanding of sacraments and all of those type of things. But uh, he, I enjoy reading Albert Moeller. Yeah, yeah, he's a very, very good writer, yeah. very good thinker, and interestingly enough, a very big Anglophile. Oh, I've yes. always thought he's something of a closet Anglican himself. Yeah, and I just can't imagine that uh, he's got to be in, like, existential headache living through watching the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Protestant denomination in America, is really just, it's going to split. Yeah. And it's not just the, the uh, issue of, of the ordination of, which is funny, there's no such thing as really ordination. In yeah, and those who are careful about it don't call it the ordination yeah, of women. Because there's called... no sacraments, so you can't have order, ordo, right. from when you don't really have sacraments. But, you know, the, the office of preaching and teaching but it's also the sexuality issue because they go hand yeah. in hand, and there's, there's hundreds of dissenting Southern Baptist parish uh, congregations on the sexuality issue, and then they're just going to break up. Yeah, and you'll you're, you'll see them split along the same lines. You're seeing it now. So they voted at the convention to disassociate from the churches who appointed women to the preaching and teaching offices. And then since then, you've seen churches like Elevation Church in North Carolina, for example, Stephen Furtick. Their churches voluntarily left the SBC over the outcome of that decision. And what was interesting to see uh, in the statements that were made, Rick Warren said, well, we agree on 99.99% of the Southern Baptist faith and message, so why can't we remain unified in light of that? And of course, Albert Moeller, in his very eloquent way, said, well, we disagree on one of the most important things. So you can't have unity around disagreement over the nature of ordination right well well it really goes beyond ordination it's really about the role and the nature of the two genders and it goes back to first principles first what, what, uh, what, what are their purpose they, they're complementary yeah they they have different roles to play in the economy of salvation and in the family and in the church right so so the argument from the Catholic side of Anglicanism is ontological, as it would be in Catholicism and Orthodoxy, right? That a priest is represents Christ, right? Uh, low church Anglicanism would fall more, for better or worse, argument here to the the headship argument that would be would be Paul's argument, right? From more of a role, from, like from, a vocation. Ephesians, right? That that uh, the pastor is the head of the local congregation is congruent is a mirror of the, of the husband being the head of the family so the wife can't be the head of the family so therefore a female passive can't be the head of god's household is what yes 
St. Paul calls the church. It's the household of God. So you can't, the female can't be the head of that. So, so it's not an ontological argument that the priest represents Christ, but it's a headship argument, right? Um, Catholic theology really mutes the two together, if you will. But um, so Anglicanism has th those two branches. But um, yeah, it's it again. It's not that Warren's all wrong. It's just that he's not all right. Mm. And and it's it's the whole nature of that charismatic free. And that's why that church just is disaffiliating in the Carolinas, right? And you can you can be guaranteed that the churches that support ordination of women are going to be the churches that are going to be supporting the sex issues too. Right. Right. You know, exactly what I was in, saying. In a large statistical measure. Yeah. So it's just, um, I mean, it's inconceivable 20 years ago that the Southern Baptist Convention would be dividing up on this, right? But that that's how deep and that meteoric pace, the whole transgender sexuality issue has just overwhelmed America at every depth of culture. It's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. And I was saying to you uh, before we went on air today, um, I've, I've little to, I have no doubt whatsoever. I've had 59, whatever God has the rest of my life and whatever role I have to play in, in ministry is, is going to be a lonely adventure for me. And I, and in your 40, 30 years younger than me, and it's, it's, it, you're going to have lonely adventure too. Because if we hold our ground, uh, I mean, we're a, we're a minority now, and I was always minority. You're going to be even a vastly more tiny minority than I was, and I got hate mail by the hundreds from people over the last 15 years, right? They, they hate us, right? The culture hates us, and the thing is, people in the pews even hate us because... By holding our ground to what's true, we make their life difficult. And that's about what they want from the pastor anymore. They want to tell you everything's okay. They want, they want you to be therapeutic, right? Um, that's not our role. And it's not a popular thing. It's difficult. And that's why there's less young men going into ministry, right? right? There's going to be less men trained and having been inspired by men of courage who actually know orthodox doctrine and know how to speak it, how to defend it, know how to do a Christian apologetics. And so it's a very fast-moving snowball that gets, it's rolling down the hill and getting bigger Speeding all the speed. Gaining speed and getting bigger all the time. And so um, the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, the, it, it's just a decade, it's just a generation behind the mainstream now, right? So United Methodist Church, right, is just busting all into all these pieces, right? And and again, it was it was the African contingent. People don't know this that the United Methodist Church wasn't an American church; it was an international church, mm. and that its greatest strength and in numbers were were, Afri were United Methodists outside of the continental United States, and it's, and that's the group that's decided to break up the United Methodist Church and said, "We've had enough of this," and so. Uh, it's very similar to the, the Anglican issue with, with um, GAFCON and, and some other things. And so um, the Southern Baptist Convention's war is going to get really ugly. It, it's going to get... Sadly, really, I think... Probably. Yeah, and the media is obviously going to 
uh, totally uh, hop on the back of the progressive end. Of, yeah, you of, can of see them the taking sides terms. already. Especially <laughs> because they were such a group that had such fundamentalist roots. The fact that they're bailing, the media is going to use that. No, they eat it right up. Right, to the best they can. Even the, you know, the, and the other churches are going to uh, struggling with it. They don't get as much media attention. Even the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, it, it's, its ugly head is starting to rear itself. The PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, probably the most traditional, that, that, same thing, right? It, it gets itself into these synodical votes, starts out with a tiny minority, but they just chip away, chip away, chip away. Very persistent. Over 10, 15, 20, 30 years, it moves closer and closer to the majority, and then you get schism. And uh, it's almost inevitable that's going to happen in all those groups. It's going to happen in the Roman Church. Over the synodality, that's a great transition mark. So there are a couple articles on the CatholicThing.org, which we'll talk more about, but the Synod of Synodality, would you care to give a brief synopsis of, I'm less familiar with the origins of that synod than I am with the the goings-on in the Anglican Communion. Oh, really? Its origins is in the current occupation of the Sea of Rome. Uh, and it goes back to his, uh, really, my opinion, the, the poorest encyclical I've ever read, written by a, a, a pope, Amoris Laetitia. Yes, and that's been referred to. Yeah, and uh, uh, in it, uh, coyly, you know, I mean, almost like, you know, he put it in footnotes as opposed to the text that there need to be exceptions to the churches, uh, or, the, or there could be exceptions to the churches, a doctrine on marriage and divorce and communion and remarriage and and then as you know Francis is a go he's he's the most ambiguous speaker yeah he's always ever. speaking with winks and right. nods yeah it's tongue in cheek you know and he does it you know on on the jet coming back from somewhere and who am I to judge this person and yeah but the whole the whole thing about the synodicality isn't even about supposed to be about doctrine it's about listening to us learning how to talk to each other yeah. Being inclusive, right? And so sitting and, and listening. It's LBGTQ is the whole issue. And that acronym is actually used in the document, Instrumentatum Laboris, right? Which is going to be mm. the working document. It's already out. It's the working document yeah. of. And that acronym, you know, Father Gerald Murray, who I think has been the best spokesperson against in the most articulate uh, EWTN guy, he does mm. the papal posse every month with uh, Robert Royal and on EWTN. And, and he's like, it's ridiculous. That whole acronym is, is incompatible to Christ Catholic and Christian doctrine. It shouldn't even be in a Christian document. You're if, already conceding that there's legitimacy to these things, which in and of themselves, each one of those initials is contradictory to the other initials. It's like the stupid bunkum sticker. It's like the coexist, coexist bunker sticker. Right. And it's... Um, this thing's a mess, right? And it, it's, it, it's, 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 it's just, it's really a, a synod walking off the edge of a cliff. But the average, average, there's not 5% of Catholics in any place that have any idea what it's really about. And again, not, and I love the Catholic tradition. I love our brethren. But not 5% of Catholics could even tell you, articulate the catechism's doctrine. Right, and so it doesn't affect their lives as long as whoever their father is is a nice guy, 
and he preaches things that don't bother him. It doesn't him. rock the boat. They don't care about the stuff, right? So the big issue going on is, is, is Germany, right, who has been full-fledged into the synodical process for two or three years and has made it clear. And their cardinal, Hollerich, and their head bishop is actually going to be the prelator, the head of the Synod of Synodality, hmm. appointed by the Pope. And already in Germany, they're already doing same-sex blessings in defiance of the church That's right. for two years, right? They've already said, we should ordain women, we should have uh, same-sex blessings. They're already doing same-sex blessings by the hundreds, they've been doing by the thousands, right? With no, no discipline back from the Pope whatsoever. But, uh, for instance, uh, Bishop Strickland of Tyler, Texas. Meanwhile. This week, week, two weeks ago, he was at Dodger Stadium to protest that stupid group. They were... Uh, the Sisters of Perpetual yeah, Indulgence. Absolutely gross group being honored I mean, by Catholic the Catholic hate group. Totally, totally. Uh, uh, and he was the only bishop that showed up. None of the California bishops, the Archbishop of Los Angeles didn't show up. So he showed up led the Eucharistic procession, prayed the rosary. And now, basically, the Pope has sent an inc inquisition to Tyler, Texas, to investigate his behavior. And it's, it's, it's just unbelievable, right? He's, he is one of the most faithful Orthodox bishops in the world, Being so, and certainly in America. And his diocese, by the way, is in one of the most Protestant places in the country. It's Southern Baptist territory, yeah. right? East Texas. And... Uh, Meanwhile, in Germany, none of those, none of them, not a single one of them, has any discipline, right? And anybody who thinks, no matter what eventually comes out of the Synod of Synality, it's supposed to be in October of this year, right? That's right. No matter what comes out of that, anybody who thinks the German church isn't going to continue to go, the trajectory they're going, are naive, stupid, and foolish. It's, it is deja vu. It's the Anglican Communion from 1990. Right, you start off with dissent. You, you ignore. You ignore it. You ignore Lambeth one ten. You keep going your way. You do it. Nothing ever happens. Assist. Rowan Williams did nothing. The Pope's doing nothing. And he, here's a real issue. You know what this is about? It's about Ching. Because mm. the German Church is gives more money to the Vatican coffers than anybody. Because in Germany, you have to pay a tax. That's right. Yeah. You either pay a Protestant tax or a Catholic tax comes out of your money, it comes out of your, and, the and then the state gives the money to the churches. <clears throat> so the German Catholic Church has billions of dollars. It, it's, it's losing people, because whether you go to church or not, they still get the money. You still get the money, because you have to check off either Protestant or Catholic, and the taxes go to the churches. So I just read, they've lost 500,000 people. In the I last read, read that recently, two yeah. Two years. Hemorrhaging. So, so faithful Catholics are embarrassed, and they're jumping, you know, I don't know what they're jumping ship, but they're just not going to. Well, I think that's a real dilemma for faithful Catholics. And for those who I've listened to, it's... What do you do? There's no easy answer. Where do you go? Yeah, where do you go? Right. Do you stay and try to be faithful in your local congregation? Or do you... Because I think for someone who's a faithful Catholic, there's always the hesitancy to go and do the same thing that the Protestants do. Well, that's in their own words. That's what this synodality is. It's, 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 and that's the irony of it's, it. It's like, yeah, it's like the worst form of Protestantism that's being lived out in this K 
chaos of a, an, an, an invention idea by, and it's just going to gut the authority of real bishops, right? I mean, uh, right, people, lay people, people, even non-believers are invited to this thing to give their opinion about how the church should church. Be, that makes sense. Yeah. be more inclusive and so forth. So, but Germany is, um, it's ungodly what's going on in Germany in the Catholic Church. And it's, again, for me, it's a deja vu of uh, how the disintegration of, of um, the Anglican Communion. But the idea this could ever happen to a Pope, and especially it could ever happen following John Paul the Great and, and Joseph Ratzinger is just staggering. It's staggering. In ten years, in ten years, you've gone from having theological giants uh, in, in that office to just chaos. Just and, and you know, and there's, and there's a lot of good priests that I still know and hear from. They, but they're afraid to say anything in public. They're afraid to actually voice their opinions um, because of the retribution from the. And the episcopacy and all of this other stuff, and as you know, certain priests, Father Altman, just got they get canceled, mm -hmm. right? Spoke out against abortion and against Biden, canceled. Just their their um, faculties to, to be priests just suspended by their bishop. Meanwhile, there's gay bishops living with people in their rectory and on Grinder and all this other stuff, and they get a little, they get reinstated within months, but you know, uh, it's. It's all what the Lord would said would happen, but it's it's just it doesn't make it easier. Painful. It's to, very painful. painful to watch, and I just have such. I just feel so much for the faithful people, and and all these I have such sympathy for them. From, you know, Catholicism, the Southern Baptist Convention. To, there's virtually nobody left in the Episcopal Church, but even faithful people in Acna, there's all they're just endlessly confronted with compromise. Compromise, yeah. compromise, compromise, and um, and Jesus didn't compromise anything. <laughs> no, and when you get right down to it, as we've said before, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's that great quote from uh, Doctor Peter Kraft, where he says, "When there's a maniac at the door, feuding brothers reconcile." Yes. And so you see a lot of that, I think, and we try to embody a lot of that in our conversations here. But the synod of synodality, it's hard to put words to, I think, because of the the insanity that it embodies. But reading up on it, there was an article that you shared with me on the Catholic things that I want to pull a quick excerpt from, the uh, Synodality Without Spirit by Randall Smith. Oh, yes. And that was the one on the mission statements. I just want to pull a few things out of it. And he actually goes on to quote one of our, our favorite Anglicans, C.S. Lewis, and describing the document, the final North American document on the Synod of Synodality, he says, to say that it was empty would be an insult to emptiness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You open a box, you find it empty, and that's that. You haven't wasted much time with this document. You keep wondering, when is it going to say something? But it never does. It's like being lured further into the desert by a mirage of water you never find. Someone asked what I thought of the theology of the document. That's like asking what I think of the current king of France. There is no current <laughs> king of France. And so, too, is there no theology in the final document. Nothing. doesn't even mention salvation. 
The Trinity never makes an appearance. The word Christ shows up a few times, but never with any account of why is he important. And it's difficult to judge a theology of a church document that lacks even a single reference to scripture, no reference to scripture, to tradition or the magisterium. And then lastly here, the authors should say we should be on mission, but never clarify what the mission is for or what the Christians have to offer that would make others want to be a part of the church, especially a church that produces a document this vague and lifeless. C.S. Lewis once wrote about friendship that people who have a shared interest or goal become friends. People who set out to have friends rarely find them because they lack a shared goal. So the two people who love Christ can be friends, two people devoted to synodality will soon drift apart. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing in that document about the, the mission of the church is to bring people to salvation in Christ. That, that, that's the church's mission. Instead, it's, it's dominated by this... Uh, it's not a mystery. This, this ridiculous half-speak about listening to the Spirit, all this, or variations thereof, right? And about including people uh, you know, going out of your way to include people who don't believe the, the, what the church teaches. You know, so it'd be like it'd be like Muslims filling up their mosques with devout Catholics. Why would they do that? We yeah, would, they have no interest in that. We wouldn't expect that, right? We don't, and we, you know, out of respect, we wouldn't do that. And you know, it'd be like I don't. I would not go to a synagogue of um, Hasidic Jews and expect them to allow me to fully participate in their rituals, right? Um, it's, it's idiocy. It's idiocy, right? So you got this LBGTQ acronym in there, and they're like, we need to meet their needs. Their needs are the same as everybody else is a broken sinner. The church has never excluded anybody, any right. sinner from the church. is not excluded, right? And the idea... the what this document is saying is they're excluded from sin. That's what they're really saying. Yeah, that's what they're implying. Like, because you feel this about yourself, therefore you, you're not guilty of these things. But the white guy who's saying that these things are still true is guilty of prejudice and all the, It's idiocy, a logical idiocy. And, but it sells. It sells like candy to a third grader. It sure does. The One of the statements from this article that resonated very deeply with you is that it, this final document was like a university <coughs> mission statement, lacking any substantive vision of educational excellence. Without that substance, such a document provides neither meaningful guidance nor the means to restrain administrative misbehavior. They usually serve as an all-purpose cloak of legitimacy for whatever the administration chooses That's to do. funny. He wrote an article about a month ago or two months ago about the mission statement of the university he works at, and he goes, I'm done with these stupid statements. Yeah. <laughs> it was a great article. He goes, They're stu he goes, they say nothing, they accomplish nothing, and uh, I, I found that ironic, and then he tacked that on to the end of that article, too. It's so true. It, it, yeah, it's just... I, I can't even explain why the thing exists. I, it's just... It, it it's gonna bring it sounds like a gang. no value to the church. It's gonna d divide the church. It's going to gut the church. It's going to it's the church is in de facto schism already, right? It allows a double standard. Uh, it, it looks so hip hypocritical. It's about money, um, going after devout 
good, faithful servants of Orthodox Catholic teaching and, and leaving these heretics free to roam around and put a heretic in charge of the whole thing. The guy in charge, particularly the cardinal in, in uh, Germany, has come out and said various times in the last year that the church's teaching on sexuality is just wrong and has to change. Well, a cardinal shouldn't even be allowed to say that. No, where's the discipline? Right? It should be saying, give me your hat back, right? You're retired, right? No, none of that, right? No, you're in charge of this thing. Like, who, <laughs> who does that other than the person sympathetic to changing the trajectory of the church? Exactly. Right? So um, I think what most, dis make, you know, I wouldn't say despairs me, it's close. Dismay, perhaps. Dismay, yeah, is that the average pew sitter doesn't even know what's going on. If they did know, I'm not sure they'd care. And yet it's it's going to be the demise. It's going to be the demise. They of, don't even know that of, it's coming. Of the church, right. And meanwhile, all these demographic problems are happening to the church, right? The, 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 the birth rate in America dropping, the German birth rate is so low they're not even going to exist in 25 years, right? Across all of Europe, across all of Chris, uh, Catholic Europe, right? The once Christian continent, right? Um, and yet these people, these the German bishops, even the Vatican, it just keeps pushing along with this idea uh, that it's actually it's going to achieve what for the kingdom of God? Uh, it's just, yeah, it's baffling. The whole thing, it's just baffling. It's easy to let it pull one into despair. And I think that's... Or just give into it. Or to, right, either that, despair or to give up. That's what most people I talk to just do. Get tired and you give up. I gave an example up. of a family member I had a conversation with. And I'm like, I don't know if it's by just uh, emotional exhaustion or just... Um, you know, lack of intellectual integrity around the issue, just like, yeah, that's how it is. Yeah. And it's like, wow. <laughs> and then they're not alone. They're, they're, that's the normative for families across the There's spectrum. There's nothing unusual about that. Not at all. Not at all. So for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are aware of these things, our fellow Christians who confront the same dismay that we feel over current events. How should, one, we've talked about why we care, but two, how should we think and act on these things? Because there's definitely a line to walk. We talked about the line between despair and giving in to sin. There's also a line to walk between wholehearted concern about the things that are wrong with the church versus a tendency to just to doom scroll as it's called you can do it with the news but to develop an addiction to things which are salacious to things that which are scandalous and to just sit around and, and complain yes for the sake of complaining yeah so i don't know i don't know that i have a perfect answer to that but i think i think motivation is one of them that we like we said before, the mission of the church is to spread the gospel and to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that should be our primary motivation. And that should motivate us to speak the truth when it's inconvenient and to point out things that are wrong, not necessarily to dwell on them, because you don't want 
the dwelling on problems to distract you from going out and doing the work of ministry in your vocation and within your local congregation. I think once it reaches that point of, of, of distraction and preoccupation, that that's where we could tend to fall into error. And the same way that despair could distract you as well. I think it's a, I think it's a very s- similar answer I'm going to give you to what I answered to you about the last time we met and, and did a taping on chronic illness. Mm. I think it's the same answer, more or less. What you need to do is be an informed, have an informed conscience as a believer that's informed through prayer, participation in divine liturgy, and regular reception of sacraments, confessing your sins, recognizing the truth. And living from that perspective, not living in a make-believe bubble world that this stuff's not really happening. It's happening, except the fact that it's happening. And the fact that it's happening and that the, that the evil ones in the church is nothing new, right? It's an excellent from reminder. Garden of the Eden from when he's grabbing the heel, right? In the book of Genesis, all the way through, he's, right? The last thing he wanted to do was the church to succeed. Still the case. So our, our baptismal vocations never change. No matter what's going on, whether we're experiencing ecclesiastical chaos, whether we're being ostracized by our family, our vocation and our first allegiance is to Christ alone. Amen. And that means whatever, whatever you have to do to remain loyal to that vocation to Christ, you do it. Here's the rub. Precious few will do it. They'll, they won't do it. I can name, I can't name, I'm not sure I can fill up both my fingers on people that are going to do this. But that's, that's our vocation. And we don't need to tell Christ what's going on and what's wrong. God's, God's quite aware of what's going on. What God expects from you is to keep the promise you made to him. Just like it's like your vows in marriage, right? right? It's like your vows, you know, your baptismal vows. God expects you to keep. God's going to take care of the rest. God will judge the rest. You don't need to sit there. It's like it's like uh, I have a relative. All she does is spend all day watching CNN and then have an angina all day, right? It produces nothing. We God, can't solve the world's problems. No, but we we can be what we're called to be, right? Now we're not called to be rude. We're not called to be. Um, uh, disrespectful, but we're called to speak the truth in love. Now, I, th- this I have no doubt. Speaking the truth in love will be interpreted as rude in our culture. Yes, already is. But uh, you have to decide what you stand for, what you're willing to take for the cross. And um, I've said it for years. What What is the average pew sitter in even places I've pastored priest, the bishop, what do I think the average person is willing to give up for Christ? Nothing. Nothing. And the saints will give up everything. But this saints are rare, and they're going to be rarer. So really, it's really, it's a matter of choice. It's just like chronic illness. You have to choose. You have to choose joy. It, it, exactly. Is it joy unspeakable or not for you? 
Is it because all these things are not going the way you want them so you can have an easy Christian life, uh, raking you into the life of despair, or are you full of joy because Christ never leaves you? Not even death can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What is it you're about, right? I don't think the average, quote, believer has any clue what they're about. They've never even really contemplated it. No, they've never been so many of those who are Christians or claim to be Christians in the West have never been confronted with a situation that has forced them with the prospect that they might have to make a sacrifice right. or they might have to think and critically consider what it is that they believe in. And thank God for those who do. My pastors can't do it, Nathan. They, they can't do it. No. Because the truth is they get to say, listen, this, this is what the cost of being a Christian is going to be. Whether you're a Christian pastor, or you're a Christian layperson, it's going to cost you Socially, it's going to cost you financially. It's going to cost you, you know, economically. It's going to cost you relationships. It's going to cost you where you can live, who you can speak to, where you can go to school. It's going to cost you all those things. And anybody who doesn't say that is not even telling the truth and is not dealing with reality, right? This is where we are in history. We're back to the future. We're the church of the catacombs. We're the church of the apostolic age. We don't want to be in the Church of the Apostolic Age. We want to be, we want to live in Baroque medievalism, right? Right. That's not where God is putting us. God's, God is separating wheat from chaff. And um, it's a hard message. And uh, you know, there's, there's lots of people who have heard me in the last few years who don't like what I, I've said. And what, it's not an easy thing to I, hear preach, right? And it's like, they literally are saying, you should be saying something. I don't know what it is that they think. I don't know what world they live in. I don't know what they think God expects of us in Christ, but um, uh, then that's not going to come from my lips. And I'm willing to take, I've been on this road a long time, <laughs> road a long time, and I'm not bailing, you know, I'm not jumping ship now. So um, the truth sets us free. And that's the only thing that sets us free is the truth. And if you're free, then everything else in life isn't really that important. In fact, it's not important at all. Um, but again, it's all about perspective. Conversations is frank. You probably haven't had with three people in your whole life. It don't happen very often. No. I think I would wrap up by saying, for those who are listening and watching, that God and his providence has put us in this difficult season for a purpose. And it's not even that difficult when you compare it to the whole scope of no. the Christian experience, no. but he's chosen this specific time and place and the vocations that he has given us for a reason, and it's up to us to cooperate with that plan and to use them. Right. Why is, that, why is our culture in the situation it's in? Because it deserves it. It's just the, the wages of sin. <laughs> yes. The just wages of sin. Right. It's like a mystery. It's like I was talking about the lady before, you know, uh, my last podcast, laying at the door of the <laughs> ICU, crying about why her 95-year-old mother was dying. It's like, is that really a mystery to you? And, and the, is the collapse of Western civilization really a mystery to anybody who's, like, not totally brain dead? Mm -hmm. How can it be a mystery, right? You abandon everything civilization's about, it's going to collapse, right? I mean, who wants to move to San Francisco right now, right? Who in their right mind wants to be yeah. part of any of these things, yeah. right? It's a mystery why, 
You know, it's like California is just a big drug den. You get what you deserve, right? It's like voting. You get what you deserve. Yep. And so, um, now here's the thing about Christian faith. In eternity, you get what you deserve. It's and not always what you think you deserve. But, and that should be the ultimate thing on your mind and in your conscience as a, living this mortal life. In the end, you don't get what you think you want. You get what you deserve well, from a perfectly just God. You get what you deserve or you get God's mercy. You're always getting God's mercy. And, um, yeah, right? You, you'll deserve God's mercy because you're repentant, not because you deserve it, right. right? It's unmerited. Uh, but if you reject it, you're going to get exactly what you deserve. Right. Right? And that that's not even... I haven't even known 10 preachers in my life that even teaches that. Right? Everybody gets the same lollipop and the whole the whole schema. And that's why, you know, the relative I talk to is, I'm not, I'm not, they're, they're guilty of ignorance as much as anything else because they've never had a past even told them the truth. Yeah. So, so unless you're investigating the truth through a whole bunch of other sources, you're not even going to know the truth. Right. Right. So it's, um, so you got a great real trifecta here with uh, GAFCON, the Southern Baptist Convention, and the Synod of Synodality, but it's all the same disease. It, it's, they're not three separate maladies. They're, it's all the same. Just in different places. Yep. And in different cultures and, and the Senate division, the fact that we're all divided as Christians, right? We're not supposed to be all these groups. Never was what, God's That wasn't intention. his intention. Right. And so now we just fight them all in all these different battles, and uh, just it is what it is. So, Till Christ comes again. Yep. He reunites us all, gathers us unto himself. Well, thank you. As always, for oh, thank you. partaking of this conversation, thank you to our viewers and listeners. As always, we appreciate your continued prayers. That'll do it for our conversation today. Please like, subscribe, leave a five-star rating if you enjoyed the show. It means a lot to us. We look forward to seeing you next time. God bless.